I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Under Pressure, the U.S. Women's World Cup Team. Nothing's rainbows and butterflies around the U.S. There's been a lot of chatter, a lot of noise. The expectation is to dominate the ball, to dominate the score, to dominate the tempo of game. I don't think the respect of wearing the crest and playing for your country was there. Today, we're talking to director Rebecca Gitlitz. The U.S. women's national team entered the 2023 tournament competing against the world's toughest soccer teams, as well as the expectation for a third World Cup win. With a mix of famous veterans, ambitious newcomers, and a new head coach, the Americans prepped for another championship run. Instead, they were handed a stunning early exit, which shocked the sporting world. The Netflix documentary series Under Pressure, the U.S. Women's World Cup team, captures all of the personal and team preparation on the road to the 2023 FIFA World Cup. We learn how this team stands on the shoulders of those who played before them, how they continue to break the glass ceiling for equality in sports, and what lies ahead for the most decorated team in soccer history. It's not just about losing a game. The big risk is that they become irrelevant. I'm joined now by director Rebecca Gitlitz. Rebecca, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I'm going to be honest. I told someone that I was covering a series about the 2023 U.S. Women's World Cup soccer team, and they said, that must be a short series. So in all seriousness, did you envision a much larger or grander project based on the team's prior experience in the World Cup? No, this was always going to be a four-parter. So... I think that people will be surprised about pleasantly, I hope, about how much meatier the story is than than they might see. Um, We spent a couple episodes really introducing the players and then spent, you know, the aftermath of the tournament really explaining how much this team means. And it's not just one singular game that defines them as a team. So it's not short. So I want to start with the state of the game, because the conventional wisdom about men's soccer is that while U.S. kids grow up with team sports like baseball and basketball, they've had trouble besting nations where kids grow up playing nothing but soccer. So if that's true, how did the U.S. women get to be so dominant on the world stage? Well, if you will um, indulge me in a little history lesson here. What's super cool about this team is that Title IX sort of coincided with the the 99ers, right? And the 99ers grew up having this sort of ideal place to start playing sports. And then the 99 World Cup was here in the U.S. And so it was the first time that a women's team sort of got seen on this grand stage. And when the 99ers won the World Cup, it sort of set this ball rolling that women's soccer was going to be dominated by the U.S. And so it was this sort of perfect storm of these unbelievable players, as well as endorsements coming through, as well as Serena Williams winning the U.S. Open for the first time. So it sort of opened the floodgate for women's sports, which we are now just seeing 
really come through. But soccer for girls in this country sort of was ignited through that team. So Americans do like a winner. And one of your interviewees said that what's on the line for the U.S. women's soccer team isn't just victory, but it's relevance. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, I mean, I think that this team has sort of entered into the zeitgeist of of Americans more so than any other women's team. And I think it's because they have it all right. Like they are uh, they are good at media, right? The media loves them. They are excellent at soccer, right? They have this sort of mix of characters from, you know, a brash Megan Rapinoe to a sort of America's girl, Alex Morgan, to sort of these young phenoms like Trinity Rodman and Alyssa Thompson. And so I think that they enter into society in this already really popular way. And then they're just really good at soccer. And so winning two World Cups in a row puts them on on the main stage. Now, I don't think it's well understood, and it, it comes up in the documentary how unusual it is for that dynasty to be what it was, right? Because this team isn't just playing Portugal and the Netherlands. They're playing against the ghosts of the championship teams that came before them, right? Exactly. That's sort of exactly right. Like, this team stands on the shoulders of giants, and what they're always trying to do is be better than the generations that came before, right? And I think what a lot of people forget is that for 16 years, the U.S. team actually didn't win and then came back and won two in a row and were better than ever. And that's one of the things we try to spell out in the doc, that this one loss doesn't define this team. They'll come back and they'll come back stronger and better than anything we've ever seen. Now, you started filming seven months before the World Cup. What was the reaction from the players when they heard that you would be following them for months, going into meetings and and pregame huddles that are usually pretty sacrosanct? Yeah, I mean, thankfully, we had a really good relationship with you as soccer. So for the players, we tried to keep it really consistent for them. I mean, it was paramount that the World Cup was was the priority. And so what we tried to do was was use U.S. soccer's cameras when we could and then get in where we needed to so that we respected the players' process and the game and we got what we needed and they got, you know, the ability to focus like they needed. So just like picking who's going to be on the roster, I know that as a filmmaker, you have to decide who you're going to feature in the documentary. You can't follow everybody with a camera crew. So what was the process like of making those decisions? And and how did you ultimately decide who it was you were going to feature most prominently in the series? I think what's cool about the teams that we've seen before is there's always the superstars, right? We'll we'll always know who Mia Mia Hamm is. We'll always know who Abby Wambach is. We'll always know who Alex Morgan is. But there's more dimension to a team than just superstars. And what we wanted to do was showcase the different journeys that this team is made up of, right? It's these young phenoms that come in and have to share the field with legends. And then it's just this sort of middle group that grinds year after year, just hoping that they will make the cut. And so the pressure for each one of those groups is very, very different. And we wanted to be able to showcase all three of those parts that make up this whole of the national team. I'm really curious because I know that more casual soccer fans, you know, watch every few years when the World Cup comes around. But these women play all the time on different teams. What's their relationship like with each other 
when they're not playing together on the World Cup team? I mean, is there sort of a continuing relationship, a continuing bond? Do they train together in other venues? Like, I've always been curious about that. That's one of the coolest things, actually, that I found about this process is that they are uber competitive when it comes to the national team. This is the hardest team in the whole world to make. And somebody said it, and I think it hit the floor, but the people that did not make this 23-person roster could be starters on most teams around the world. And so they are competitors, but they are also really good at understanding that only these other women know what it's like to be in this sort of microscope. And so they are both fierce competitors and excellent friends to each other. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's really cool. And like, there are a couple of teams that have a couple of our players like Gotham, who just won the championship and we were so excited for, has uh, Christy Mewis, Lynn Williams, Kelly O'Hara, right? And so I think that you, you see the clicks in these groups, but also it's like age focused. Some of them are 18 and some of them are 38. Like there's not a lot clicking in, in those groups. So naturally they find their click. So there are names that obviously even casual fans will recognize. Alex Morgan, as you said, is really well known, but she's also this huge offensive threat. And we also see, though, that she's pretty media savvy and she has plans about what her life needs to be like off the pitch. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think that people forget that athletes have lives, right? They have families like their whole beings are at soccer. And Alex Morgan is really cool in that way because I think she whether she tried to or not, is a real role model for mothers and really doing the double duty of motherhood and being great at your job. I want to go with you. With me? I'm right here. I want to be with you. Okay. This is my first World Cup as a mom. So that is different. It just makes it even more special. Okay, but I have to work right now. I want to be with you. Okay, I am not a professional soccer player, but a lot of what she faces and a lot of what I witnessed is a lot of my life, right? And so I think that it makes it much more relatable to people when you can see the human side of things, when you understand that they have to balance so much and sacrifice so much. I think that it gives them this level of humanity, you know? Yeah. It was interesting hearing her talk about, you know, all the mothers on the team that are, you know, mothers now to young kids and, you know, how they realize people are seeing them that way and they're sort of trying to highlight it. And it just occurred to me, you know, people don't talk about dads when people become dads on teams like this. So are they aware of that dynamic about how it's different for them as women that people see them that way, aside from having to recover, obviously, from having a kid? that people are talking about them that way. And and are they sort of just like, okay, well, people are talking about us this way. Like, let's do something with this. Yeah, I think Alex certainly understands the responsibility, not to say that the others don't, but I, I spent a lot of time talking to Alex about that. And you're right, they don't. You know, when when men have children, it does not factor into their game. It does not factor into the way people cover them. It, it's pretty much never talked about. Whereas this team... Julia Ertz, her son was less than a year old and he traveled on the team plane to New Zealand and Australia. Like that is bananas to me. The amount that they are able to do double duty is something that blows me away because I certainly am still trying to find that line and I don't have to do anything physical, you know, except maybe like talk on my phone and text. 
Yeah. <laughs> so Megan Rapino is a figure that transcends sports. And we see her exuberant personality behind the scenes, but not much of her private life away from soccer. I'm wondering if that was her choice to keep her private life off camera, or is, was it more a matter of you deciding, you know, people already know Megan Rapino. Let's focus on other players on the team. It was both, truly. But um, I sat down with Megan before this, and what I thought was really cool about her was um, this is a team sport. This is 23 people. And a lot of people already know Megan or think that they know Megan. And I think that she understood that this was going to be her last cup and her last run. And she wanted to be a part of this as a member of the team and not as, you know, Megan Rapino singularly. And so I respected the hell out of that. I mean, to be honest, I've, I've been thinking about this for a long time. It is incredibly rare for athletes of any stature to be able to go out in their own way on their own terms we we sort of represented her place in this documentary the same way we represented she represented her place on the team at the world cup we we tried to mirror it hmm Arguably, one of the most important fresh faces on the U.S. women's team is the coach, Vladko Andorovsky. What did he bring to the team that his predecessors didn't, you think? I really like Vladko. I, I thought he was such a lovely person. He was always supportive of us. He had a lot working against him very early on. People don't talk about this enough, but it was a COVID year. They had COVID Olympics. They didn't have the same amount of camps. Like, you know, he had a lot of injuries to deal with, but I think that the team really liked him. I think he was a wonderful guy. He was a player's type of coach. We get a drink and we move on the other side. A manager that players love and you still only hear really good things. And what coach do you only hear really good things about? All right, there we go, play. But you do with Vlako Andonovsky. He was great to be around. And, you know, I can't necessarily speak to his coaching ability because that's not what I was there for. But dynamic wise, you know, everybody was unified. It was I think that was a real misconception about this team because there was a sense of unity there that got misconstrued to, to say there wasn't. Yeah, I never thought about this before watching your series, but the head coach of this team is an incredibly high pressure position, isn't it? Yeah, I loved that the players talked about that. And I loved that Lynn Williams really broke it down to say, you know, he's as much in the hot seat as we are, right? Like if we can get cut anytime, he can get cut anytime. And I think Megan said, I would never want this job. I think Lynn said, I would never want this job. Like, you know, it's not about the individuals because there's some unbelievable individual players out there. It's all about how the team functions together. And that's hard. That's hard in any capacity. Forget after two World Cup wins. Yeah. So you mentioned injuries a second ago. It seemed like some of the players that could have likely changed the outcome of the World Cup were on the injured list, right? Did anyone talk about that when you were doing these interviews? Yeah. I mean, when we started, Mallory was not injured. And it was the last camp that that she was injured. And she was really going to be the shining star for the U.S. And people talked about it really emotionally. And immediately they're calling for the stretcher to be brought onto the field here. It was a little surreal because you can tell from all of our faces and expressions and all of the amount of coaches and players around her in that moment that, oh, this doesn't look good. And we knew that we wanted to tell that story in there because I think Mallory will be 
the future of U.S. soccer for a long time. And even though she wasn't at this World Cup, her missing presence was a big part of the story. And so we we tried to tell the story as honestly as we could. And leaving Mallory out would have been a huge miss for us. So you're with several players as they're literally getting the call from Vladko telling them that they made the roster. Can you talk about the emotions for the players and for the filmmakers that were in the room? It was a really wild day. By that point, we were so invested in them emotionally. And we started filming with them like early that morning. And we, some of them didn't get the call till four o'clock. I can say personally, I, I had Lynn Williams that day. There were five different teams around the country. And it was brutal. It was brutal. Like every time someone's phone rang, it was um, it was just everyone jumped out of their skin. I just called to let you know that uh, you're selected for the roster for the World Cup. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm shaking. This was a much better call than the last one. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right. Bye. Lynn is so poised and. She's just such a wonderful human being that I wanted it for her so badly. And I loved how she reacted to it because it was so the way that this U.S. team functions. She was proud of herself in the moment and then said, but there's so much work to do. It's like this switch never stops flipping for them of, okay, we did one thing, but now we have actual work to do. Um, and, And I loved that. So the makeup of the team, 23 players, there were nine veterans and 14 newcomers. And there were some early grumblings about the team that Vladko picked. Can you talk about that balance? I mean, was that the right balance? I mean, you might have an opinion about that, but people talked about that. What do you think? Yeah, I think one of the things I didn't really realize, because I was not an avid U.S. soccer fan uh, beforehand. I mean, I Hmm. was of the team socially, but not necessarily a, a devote follower. And I think that this team is always made up of both, right? You always need this these legends and you always need these newcomers. And so I think that there's a revisionist history around the narrative of this U.S. national team where all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness, we have all new people. But this happens all the time. There's always young people, you know, like Savannah DeMello came on uncapped, but that wasn't even the first time that it happened. And so I think a lot of people like to talk about this team a lot. And that's one of the things that we really grasp onto in the show is is how much people like to criticize and talk about the team. And that's sort of one of the levels of pressure that we we really touched upon also. Yeah, it kept striking me that if they were successful, everyone would be talking about the genius of it, right? <laughs> it's interesting how that works, right? It's it's always a crapshoot. That's sports, right? It's It's living in the drama and like... You take one shot, it goes in, you're a genius, you miss it, you're the worst coach ever, right? That's how it goes. Netflix sports documentaries are known for their singular visuals and access and angles. And for years, soccer was shown as this single high camera television shot that covers like a third of the field. And even the gameplay in the popular video game, you know, the FIFA game mimics that spectator's point of view instead of the player's point of view. And I'm I'm wondering what you were looking for, you know, to bring the audience something different in this documentary. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked this because this was the most important thing to me, right? I think when you are retelling a story that people think they know, you have to do something different, right? 
that's first. Second, I think women's sports is always at a disadvantage, right? We are always going to be secondary. And so what I aim to bring this documentary from the jump was the extraordinary. I wanted it to look better than the rest of these docs have ever looked. I wanted you to feel like you were inside the skin of these players. And so my team, we've been shooting sports docs forever. I said, I want us to forget every single thing we've ever done at a game. I never want to follow the ball. I don't care if we get six shots a game. We are going to be patient and we are going to wait to get these expressions and we are going to sit on shots that we wouldn't sit on because we want to get into the mind and the body and the spirit of a player. And so we shot it extremely deliberately. So it looked nothing like the soccer you have ever seen before. We sort of equated it. I, the way I explained it to my camera team was, I don't want hard knocks. I want chef's table. Huh. I'm going to ask you because I one of the things that I really saw in this was like the sheer athleticism of these women. I mean, I don't think that's something you really get no. when you're far away is the extreme athleticism it takes to play this sport. Is that something that you were trying to show us? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the first minute of the film and the way that we did the soundtrack and the way you hear the grunts and you hear the physicality and you see that, like I wanted you to feel like you were inside one of the most hardcore sports, physical games that you could have. Oh, and by the way, it's women playing it. But that was really important to us to make sure that you felt the physicality, you felt the competition, you felt how badly they wanted it. Because that's something you heard, right? Like, oh, they don't really want it. But when you see this inside, you can see how badly they wanted it. Yeah. So what was your favorite action shot that you were able to get? Oh, there's a shot of Lynn Williams um, where she crosses the frame and you see the fire in her eyes. And she is just like the sweetest thing. And when you <laughs> see that, you're like, oh, my God, that's the switch. But also Christy Mewis breathing on that line. Right. That is a moment that we took a lot of care cutting because. You see these penalty kicks and we're all standing there, no matter how much you care about soccer, anybody gets into these penalty kicks and you're living and breathing it. Right. And so the way that it was shot and the the masterful job that our DPs on the ground did of of staying steady and breathing with Christy is just um, it's a work of art. It, it really is. I, I could not have been more proud of the team at that moment, just like the poise that they had. And obviously for Christy, but I certainly love the way it looks. So there were some early red flags in the World Cup. In the opening game, it was believed that the U.S. would dominate the more inexperienced Vietnam team, but they didn't look sharp, people said, and they left a lot of points on the field, people said. Um, would you say that that 3-0 victory felt like a loss for the U.S.? I, I don't think that it felt like a loss, but what I do think was that it was a very transcendent moment in understanding the grumblings that the team was going to face in this tournament. America didn't do as well as they should have done. And that's a little bit of a worry. With the Netherlands coming in the next game, there was a lack of ruthlessness. They cannot afford that against the Netherlands as they head into that 2019 World Cup final rematch. It is and it has always been about the second game against the Netherlands. We need to win that game full stop. Four years ago, they won 12-0 and people shit on them for winning 12 nothing but then this game they win 3 nothing and people are shitting on them that they win 3 nothing and so 
I think that there's no better example of this team sort of getting it from both sides of their mouth, no matter what happens. And so I think you understood that this tournament was going to be different, but I don't think it was a loss. Yeah. But every good story needs a heretic, right? And one emerges as the World Cup is underway. Former player and TV commentator Carly Lloyd called out the players for their excessive celebrations after barely escaping the group round. Um, Did you make a kind of on-the-fly decision to include her in the documentary, or was that planned? I think what was really fascinating about making this doc is that we had no idea what was going to happen ever, right? And as ever, I mean, it was a every day I was like, choose your own adventure. But as the tournament unfolded, Carly became more and more a part of the story. And I think it was our job to make sure that the story was told correctly and without bias and in a real and honest way. And it became apparent at some point that telling this story without Carly Lloyd was not honest. And today was just uninspiring, disappointing. They don't look fit. I think there's just a lot of off the field things that are happening and winning and training and and doing all that you can to be the best possible individual player is not happening. I did reach out to Carly and I said, you know, are are you willing to be a part of this? Having no idea that that was going to be the last game that they were going to play. And our producer had just flown from New York and she had literally just landed in Melbourne after 20 hours of flying. And I said, I'm really sorry. I need you to go back to Sydney. Carly is going to do this. And it became this very important scene, which we had no idea would have and could have happened. But it was very serendipitous that that it did. You know, when you watch NFL football, you see former players doing commentary and criticizing sometimes their old teams and their old coaches from the sidelines and commentary all the time. Why does it seem more unusual or pointed that that Carly is doing this about the U.S. women's team? Is it because there's sort of like a reluctance to like speak ill of this team that's been held up on this pedestal for so long? I'm just curious. That's the good question. I mean, I think sometimes it's just women get things worse. You know, like when when women start opening their mouths and saying things that are honest and true, you sort of get lambasted for it. I also think that it felt you know, a little teammate versus teammate, I think. And also they hadn't lost, right? They they hadn't. I, I think that that was sort of part of the story is that they did get at a group stage, right? Like it wasn't pretty and it wasn't great, but Germany, who was slated to win at some point, didn't even make it at a group and ne- neither did Canada. And so, you know, I think that there were some political aspects of it. There were some teammate versus teammate, but A little drama is always good for a story. So I think everybody knew that. Yeah. So is it fair, you think? Do you think her criticisms were fair ultimately? I mean, I I think that Carly walked back a lot of her criticism. You know, I rightfully so. I think probably some of it was right. I think probably some of it wasn't. I think, you know, what's interesting about this team is they put more pressure on themselves from the last generation than than anything outside. And they care a lot about what the last generation thought being better or greater. And so there was a lot at stake. Pressures were high. Tensions were high. A lot of people felt a lot of things, you know? Yeah. A little bit earlier, we were talking about capturing the action and the emotion on the field. It can be hard, though, to capture 
I guess the best way to describe it is the energy. And I'm wondering, as the team went into the knockout round, like, what was the vibe like? What was the, what was the energy like around that team? Do you feel like it changed? Did it meet the moment? I felt like the energy shifted greatly between the Portugal game and Sweden, right? It felt like they came out with a fire in Sweden that they hadn't have. And, you know, for us, it was actually tricky in between because we lost a lot of time with the players. You know, we got 10 minutes where we were normally getting an hour. And I think that everybody deeply got into the zone and understood what was at stake and you know, knockouts, penalties are a horrific way to lose. And I think had that millimeter gone the other way that they would have put it together and and made a run. And so it's a shame. It's a shame that it came down to that. It's a it's a terrible way to lose. But as Kelly O'Hara put it in the second episode, World Cups are won and lost in in seconds. Yeah. Well, the women's run does end in that game on penalty kicks against Sweden. And for one scene, you have us watch the commentators watching the action. And I'm wondering about your reactions to their reactions. What did you think about that? We watched those over and over and over again. <laughs> against Musevich. Oh, oh, my she's God. No. Out. I don't believe it. Holy. You know why I loved that is is the same reason that we we made the players human is that it was the exact same way we all watched it at home. You know, like it wasn't Carly Lloyd and Alexi Lawless, the commentators for a minute. It was just people living in this deeply intense moment. And they were reacting the way I was reacting, the way a 10 year old was reacting, the way, you know, Blacko was reacting. This was an intense moment. And I loved it. It was real. It was honest. It wasn't it wasn't what was being broadcast. It was what was happening behind the broadcast. And I think you you got to feel inside in that moment more so than than many others. Yeah. I really felt for you and your team as filmmakers after that game. I I find it personally difficult being around people at their most difficult moments. Yeah. Um was that hard being around the team right after that loss, which was, as you said, a horrible way to lose? We tried as hard as we could to be as respectful as we could while still getting what we needed. And I give Christy Mewis a lot, a lot of respect for turning around, you know, days after. But Sam was playing in the in the quarterfinals and we we needed it. You know, and and we had a long conversation with her and I give her so much credit for for doing that. I don't think that I could have. It was painful and people needed time to process. And Christine, Christine really stepped up in that moment. And, you know, the show was better for it. My dream of being at a World Cup and winning a World Cup is now over. But Sam's in the quarterfinals. This is just so crazy. This is everything that she's always wanted, too. Everyone that was on the U.S. team went back home. But there's no place I'd rather be. Like, I'm so happy to be here and support her. And obviously it is a little bit hard, but I think I can separate it because I love her so much. But I'm sure it was not that comfortable for her to do. Yeah. I mean, the players said the end of their run felt unceremonious. They were on the bus to the hotel. They're already making travel arrangements. And there's there's no sense of closure. I mean, is that what you felt? Is is that what was really going on? Yeah, I think the the World Cup just sort of ended. Right. It was it was very um, like, what do we all do now? Right. There was a lot of what happens next. And we took our time 
with the rest of episode four, which I think was really important. And, you know, the end of a narrative is always really hard. And and I took my time with that, too, of, of what we could do. But ultimately, I thought we were a better show for it. I thought we got to really unpack how much this team has meant and what they were able to do. And unfortunately, everything with Spain unfolded, but it created an opportunity to really show what this team has done in a way that matters perhaps more than wins and losses. And so it it sort of cracked something open in me in saying there's something bigger than just soccer here and, and we're able to do that. And so what Spain did and then Megan's last game allowed us to have this sort of hopeful ending in a way that you wouldn't expect in this series. So the remainder of the series looks at some of the important issues surrounding women's sports and women's soccer. When you look at pay equity, resourcing, and you know the basic safety of women, it's a mixed bag. Can you talk about the choice to make the series focus on those things? Yeah, I mean, I think as a as a filmmaker, those are always things that I want to bring into a story. But I understand that to make the general public want to watch something, you can't force issues down their throats. Right. And so I think that what we were able to do is tell important stories and really get through important messages by substantiating them, by making it so that they were there at the end and you you've already hung on for this whole ride and so now I like to call episode four sort of my feminist manifesto it was like when I got to do the really important work but there were some people that that told the story really beautifully I mean Meg Linehan saying about how this rot exists in rooms across the country that really got me that's the system this sport is up against that room is everywhere That room is every single country. These players have been told to be grateful that they're playing. Don't worry about the money. Don't worry about the hotel rooms. You'll be fine. Just shut up and go play. Julie Foudy talking about how the the world is better because the U.S. stood up when, when nobody wanted to pay attention. Like, those things really matter. And that's the legacy of this team that they are doing the work when when nobody was paying attention and they have been able to make these transcendent steps of progress. So it sort of makes the loss dull a little bit, you know, and I think that also what I wanted to show is this changing of the guard that like just because this chapter happened doesn't mean that this story is over. In fact, it's it's just beginning and it's a new iteration. Do you think about your place in that? I'm wondering because, you know, you talked at the beginning about how U.S. women's soccer has really marked the turning of a page for women's sports. And now you have made a a series about U.S. women's soccer that a lot of people are going to watch because it's on Netflix. Do you think about, you know, the fact that your series could also sort of elevate the profile of women's sports and like how important that is in certain ways? I mean, that is my dream come true. I've been fighting the fight for a long time. And I I thank Netflix so much, but especially Jenna Anthony, who who was our executive on this project from Netflix. And this is the first time that women get the stage in this way, you know, not only on Netflix, but just in these like positions of power in mainstream media and like sort of my my mantra to myself is always taking the margins into the mainstream And I hope that people understand how much representation matters and how much 
if we watch and we pay attention and we invest in women's sports, that we can just make it grow. And everybody needs to use their seat at the table for good, because if each one of us use our voice, it starts getting amplified louder and louder and louder. So a common refrain has been that women's international soccer is now so competitive because the rest of the world has had to catch up with the U.S. Abby Wambach says the only way other nations could beat the U.S. was because they needed to get better. Do you agree with her? A hundred percent. I think that what the U.S. forced other nations to do was invest in their programs, was to be better, was to to take the example that the U.S. gave, which is that women belong on the field and women can put up these excellent matches. And they did that. But also what's interesting about the rest of the world is that they are, like you said before, so invested in soccer. So they already have these systems in place. Right. Chelsea was very it was very easy to translate a Chelsea women's team because Chelsea already had the infrastructure. Right. England already had a men's team. And so as the world is is catching up, it was because of the U.S. women's team. But it's also because soccer is dominant around the world and they realize like, oh, women can play, too. So here we are. Yeah. So that you, you don't think that this marks a decline in the quality of the women's team? I think that we're going to start playing checkers, right? We're going to start hopping over each other and it's going to be some excellent soccer to be watched. Hmm. So do you think the U.S. women's national team will get back on top soon? Well, I think the Olympics is going to be a wild ride, right? England didn't qualify. Sweden didn't qualify. The U.S. has a new coach. I mean, Jamaica is a is a new they were so dominant at the World Cup just because they have a small investment. Like, how amazing is it that we get to see these nations like come and deliver? Like, this is what we asked for, right? Like Megan Rapinoe said, nobody wants to see the same team win over and over. Like now we really get to have some some meaty competition. So I think this is this is what we've been waiting for. But you can't ever count the U.S. women out. They they have winning in their DNA. Well, I'm going to be watching in a different way because of you and your series Under Pressure, the U.S. Women's World Cup team. Rebecca Gitlitz, thank you so much for joining me to talk about it. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. I loved your questions. I felt like they they really had some context to them. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Rebecca Gitlitz. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV shows, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack and Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 